This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. It's time for the New Yorker. Since 1925, it's been the world's source for the finest in art and fiction, sophisticated reviews, humor, commentary, and news. Stay tuned for this week's Culture Blast from the one and only New Yorker, right now on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is the New Yorker, and I'm your reader, Dale, with the audio reading service at the Ellen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from the New Yorker dated December 25th, 2023. And now I'll begin with the talk of the town. Comment. Speaking freely. On a wet afternoon in late September, Claudine Gay, the first black president of Harvard University, delivered her inaugural address. Gay, who had previously been the dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, said that knowledge is best served when we commit to open inquiry and freedom of expression as foundational values of our academic community adding that a diversity of backgrounds, lived experiences, and perspectives enables the learning that happens when ideas and opinions collide. The past several years, of course, have seen an erosion of academic freedom. From book bans to the notion that offensive ideas make one unsafe, both the right and the left have participated in curtailing open inquiry. As dean, Gay built a reputation for prizing the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are often perceived as intolerant of viewpoints, say that marriage is limited to a man and a woman, or affirmative action is discriminatory, or there are only two biological sexes that may offend marginalized groups. At her inauguration, she warned that diverse viewpoints can be a recipe for discomfort, fired in the heat of social media and partisan rancor, and that this can make us vulnerable to a rhetoric of control and containment that has no place in the academy. A week later came the attack of October 7th. The shock, shocking severity of Hamas's slaughter, rape, and kidnapping of Israelis had not yet sunk in, but that same day, 34 Harvard student organizations issued a statement holding the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence because of its previous actions in Gaza. The backlash was swift. Some called for disciplinary measures. The hedge fund CEO, Bill Ackman, a Harvard alumnus, demanded that the names of the organization's members be released so that potential employers could avoid hiring them. A truck in Harvard Square displayed students' faces with the caption, Harvard's leading anti-Semites. Denunciations came from lawmakers, including the Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, an ardent Trump supporter and a Harvard alumna. On October 9th, Gay and the university's deans issued a statement emphasizing our common humanity and goodwill in a time of unimaginable loss and sorrow, but did not explicitly condemn Hamas or rebuke the student groups. Gay's successive pronouncements condemning the terror attack and denouncing anti-Semitism and introducing an advisory group to address it created an unfortunate appearance of her being pushed to say whatever might quell the public relations storm. 
when she defended free speech in response to calls to curb anti-Israeli or anti-Semitic statements, critics cried hypocrisy, noting that Harvard intervenes in incidents of alleged racist and sexist speech under the rubric of harassment and discrimination policies, though not to the punitive degree the critics were demanding. If Gay hoped to implement the free expression vision of her inaugural address, the Fuhrer was derailing it. Many academic freedom proponents yearned for the University of Chicago's Calvin Principles, which require university leaders not to issue statements on social and political matters so that the university can be a neutral forum for diverse viewpoints, political protest, and candid discussion. But in November, amid pressure to punish protesters chanting, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, Gay declared, I I condemn this phrase. To some, including Hamas, the slogan advocates eliminating Israel or the Jewish presence in the Middle East, but to others it advocates freedom and equality for Palestinians. During the December 5th Congressional Hearing on Campus Antisemitism, Representative Stefanik insisted that such slogans are genocidal. As she and other Republican lawmakers grilled three university presidents, Gay, Liz McGill of the University of Pennsylvania, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT, she asked, Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules on bullying and harassment? Gay said that it can, depending on the context. Kornbluth and McGill offered similar responses. Stefanik declared them unacceptable. The claim that the answer depends on context is correct. Any responsible determination of a policy violation is context-dependent. In the context of October 7th, it would have been clearer to say something like, yes, calling for a person to be killed because they are Jewish or Palestinian would constitute bullying and harassment. And if the phrase, from the river to sea, was used specifically to threaten to kill someone, that would, at a minimum, violate the rules. It is unlikely, however, that any correct answer would have been acceptable. The presidents walked into an ambush, having prepared for a deposition where counsel advises minimalist answers, rather than for political grandstanding. And the moment plainly needed a moral statement rather than a legally precise reply. More than 70 congresspeople demanded that all three presidents be fired. McGill was already vulnerable. Donors had rescinded funds in response to Penn's hosting a Palestinian literary festival in September, to which a speaker who had been accused of anti-Semitism and denied it was invited, and she resigned. Stefanik responded, one down, two to go. The fact that the presidents are women and that gay is black made them a target for attacking diversity and equating it with being unqualified. Ackman commented that shrinking the pool of candidates based on required race, gender, and or sexual orientation criteria is not the right approach to identifying the best leaders for our most prestigious universities. But after 700 faculty members, I was among them, urged Harvard's governing board to resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom, the board unanimously supported Gay's continuing as president, writing, We champion open discourse and academic freedom. 
No one should be duped into applauding a McCarthy-esque spectacle of members of Congress demanding firings by universities. Last year, Stefanik co-sponsored the Restoring Academic Freedom on Campus Act, claiming that some universities, in their devotion to far-left woke ideology, had failed in the task of encouraging diversity of ideas. Some conservatives appear to think that the wave of moral panic they are riding will somehow bring about more freedom of expression. But inciting rage over not punishing anti-Semitic speech or speech that they take to be anti-Semitic will place pressure on universities to create or toughen codes to restrict even more speech. Here's hoping that universities will have the courage to level up on academic freedom rather than down. And that article was written by Jeannie Sue Gerson. The next article, The Bench, Spectator Sport. Most days, Donald Trump is not required to appear at the civil fraud trial for the suit brought against him by Letitia James, the New York Attorney General. Yet there he sits, the former president, a permanent scowl on his face directed at the American judicial system, flanked by his lawyers, all of whom seem awestruck at the strange turn that their careers have taken. But if you squint and look just beyond the defendant, there is another regular figure in the gallery, a man with close-set eyes wearing a dress shirt and smiling broadly. It is Alan Roscoff, the head of the Jim Owls Liberal Democratic Club, a small LGBTQ political group based in the village. Roscoff, always seated in the front row, is familiar to anyone who has aspired to high office in New York during the past half century. A civic gadfly, he is known as a tormentor of politicians whom he dislikes. He organized an effort to find an opponent for Mayor Eric Adams soon after Adams was sworn in. Politicians he does like get both the Jim Owls Club endorsement and regular invitations to attend Broadway shows at Roscoff's date. Last month, he went to see I Can Get It For You Wholesale with 20 judges. Roscoff's social media pages are full of shots of him with progressive allies. District Attorney Alvin Bragg, Chuck Schumer, Representative Richie Torres, often at the theater just before the lights go down. Roscoff, who has been a gay activist in New York since Stonewall, has said he was the city's first openly gay political hire when he went to work for the Comptroller in 1974. He founded Jim Owls in 2004, naming the club after a friend who had died of AIDS. Following Colin Kaepernick's lead, Roscoff routinely kneels during the national anthem. Trump has been a regular antagonist ever since 2011 when he was exploring a presidential run and told reporters that he opposed not only gay marriage but also giving gay couples the same rights as straight married couples. Roscoff promptly labeled Trump an extreme bigot in the Daily News and called for a boycott of all Trump businesses. Trump telephoned his adversary and the two had a fiery back and forth. Do you know what your gay employees think of you? Roscoff asked him. They all respect me because they know I treat everyone equally, Roscoff recalls Trump replying. Roscoff refuted that, adding, they all think you're a horrible person. Now, 12 years later, Roscoff gets to watch his old enemy in the hot seat from a few yards away. 
His spot in the gallery is courtesy of the trial's judge, Arthur Engeron. The two have known each other for years, and in 2015, Engeron showed up seeking the Jim Owls Club endorsement. We only endorse people who share the values of the club, Roscoff said, things like civil rights, equality, economic justice. Engeron has survived calls from the Trump camp, which considers him biased to recuse himself. He has an allotment of court seats in the front rows to dole out, one of which he has given to Roscoff. A lot of the judges who come before our club, you endorse them, and then they just disappear, Roscoff said. They can't come to fundraisers, but they can come to private parties, and some of them you really bond with and become friends. He went on, and you just keep your fingers crossed and hope that they do the right thing from the bench. In order to get the club's endorsement, Roscoff said, you have to be left on everything. It's a deal-breaker if a local politician declines to back Roscoff's plan to remove former Mayor Ed Cox's name from the 59th Street Bridge. When judges run, they show up at every GD Christmas party in New York City, he said. I could tell the stupidest joke in the world, and some of these judges would laugh at it. Roscoff has never taken Engeron to the theater, but the judge has attended the Jim Owls holiday party. I didn't seek out a friendship with him, Roscoff said. I like his mannerisms. He has a great sense of humor. Roscoff has been impressed with the way that Engeron has presided in the Trump case. He asks all the right questions, he said. He especially admires the fact that the judge hasn't let the Trump lawyers bait him into losing his temper. It's a restraint that Roscoff himself lacks. It was all I could do to not go up to Eric Trump and tell him he shouldn't wear those crazy socks all the time, he said. He looks like a clown. You look at him and you want to go wash your hands afterwards. As for the former president, he said, it has been wonderful to watch him squirm. And even though in the course of the trial, his friend the judge has withstood a number of vicious right-wing threats being in the courtroom, Roscoff said, is like living in history. Donald Trump on trial, in person. It's the chance of a lifetime. And that article was written by David Friedlandler. The next talk of the town article, titled, Department of Dudes, Sophisticated Meatheads. John Finkel's calling as a book whisperer to Burley Bros can be traced to the summer of 2005. He was in his mid-twenties, living a version of the Southern California dream, surfing at dawn, writing for fitness magazines by day, and playing beach volleyball in the evening. The courts were in high demand, and he always arrived early and brought something to read. Finkel's apartment a block from the water was too small to accommodate his growing library, so he found himself pushing paperbacks on friends and family as a means of decluttering. His wasn't a literary crowd, but he found a 100% hit rate, as he recalled the other day, with a nonfiction book called Shadow Divers by Robert, Robert Curson, about a pair of explorers who discover a sunken German U-boat off the coast of New Jersey. One acquaintance after another devoured the book. Then Finkel got a call from his friend Frank, who had been in a fraternity at Penn State, with Finkel's younger brother Craig. Dude, somebody just recommended Shadow Divers to me, and it's the effing copy you gave me six years ago, Frank said. The dog ears were unmistakable. 
Finkel is now an author in his own right, whose books include Jocks in Chief, which ranks the American presidents in order of athleticism, Gerald Ford first, Andrew Johnson last, and a forthcoming biography of the wrestler Macho Man. He also issues weekly reading recommendations for sophisticated meatheads, as he calls them, through his newsletter, Books and Biceps. Robert Curson is a subscriber. He lives in Palm Beach County, Florida, with his wife and two kids, and he benches as much as he did two decades ago, 315 pounds. A wall of his garage gym, known to Finkel followers as the Flex Factory, features posters of Rocky Balboa, Larry Bird, and the Boz, plus a touch of sophistication via Teddy Roosevelt in black and white. I love the man in the arena speech, he explained while giving a tour. Don't read it every week, but every now and then I'll be sweating, stop, and it kind of fires you up a little bit. Think of Finkel as a gym rat's Reese Witherspoon. At the end of the day, I'm just one dude out here getting other dudes to read again one book at a time, he tweeted recently. Occasionally, this can feel like swimming with an anchored harness. He's done it. The publishing world in general is not very meat-heady, he said. The overlap of dudes who lift and also read a ton is like the most underserved market. Contra stereotype, Finkel estimates that only 10% of meatheads are numbskulls. It takes a pretty good amount of education to get your body how you want it, he said. He mentioned the kind of savvy feedback that he finds most gratifying, like when a reader praises him for recommending the lesser-known Churchill bio. Beware the biography-laden diet, though, which is the bibliophile's equivalent of skipping leg day. I openly talk about balancing out, Finkel said. For each churnow, try an updike. Offset the military history with narratives of personal survival. Candace Millard, every book is incredible. Two sophisticates in athletic shorts soon joined Finkel at the Flex Factory for a workout that he called Clubber Lang's Four Rounds of Pain, inspired by Mr. T's character in Rocky III. They were his brother Craig and his old friend Kynan Codrington, who had arrived with a copy of The Quarterback Whisperer, a Finkel wreck, in his car. Codrington confessed that he'd been nursing it, Craig sympathized. I don't read him as fast as John over here claims to, he said. But I'd say all the books I've read in the past several years are something that John recommended. He does the legwork, so why waste your time? Among the books currently on Craig's nightstand are The Last Folk Hero, a biography of Bo Jackson, and the novel Whale Fall. He hadn't started that one yet, so Finkel provided a synopsis. It's about a scuba diver who gets swallowed by a whale and has to puzzle-solve his way out through biology. It sounded good, but could it measure up to shadow divers? Craig was skeptical. Every person's favorite book ever is Shadow Divers, he said. They listened to 90s rap while cycling through the workout routine. Hex bar deadlifts, jump rope, landmines, crunches, band curls— Finkel was alone among the trio and draping a chain around his neck before grabbing the pull-up bar. Maybe it was the sporadic book talk or the indignities of middle age, but they were starting to flag after three rounds of pain. I think the fourth round will put everybody on their ass. Finkel acknowledged. Codrington re-entered the garage after jogging to a stop sign and back. Dying here, he said. I played college football for one year and that. This is a harder workout than that. 
but John's an inspiration to all the guys with the father figures and not the dad bods. And that article was written by Ben McGrath. And now the critics, a critic at large. This article is titled Family Matters. Am I one of the last living relatives of Bruno Schulz? And this article was written by Catherine Schulz. Strange things are happening up in the sky. First, a windstorm blows in so powerful that roof after roof is torn from its joists and sails off into the night. The few brave souls who venture outdoors fill their pockets with iron and brass to keep from being swept away. No sooner does the gale die down than a flock of wild birds materializes overhead. Wild not only because they are untamed, but also because they are outlandish. Some fly upside down. Others have dense, tangled fur like bison. Still others have no bodies at all, only magnificently ornamented tails like peacocks. After the birds, a comet appears on the far edge of the firmament, destined by its trajectory to destroy our planet. Every night people gather to gape at it, and every night the sky across which it courses grows less familiar and more dazzling, filled with distant nebulae and exploding suns and roamed by the constellations, as if they have finally been freed from their ancient curses. Where did all these aerial wonders come from? The short answer is the imagination of Bruno Schulz, a Polish Jew born and raised in the town of Drohobes, who was murdered by the Nazis in 1942. The long answer does not exist because it is the deep, unanswerable question of literature. Under what circumstances, by what unrepeatable concatenation of history, biology, and psych, does the human mind come to produce such things? One way to measure the originality of artists is by how acutely they provoke this question. By that metric, Bruno Schulz was a genius, albeit one belonging to that special subcategory known as the writer's writer, the kind whose brilliance is most evident to his peers. Susan Sontag, Philip Roth, and Cesla Milos all admired him lavishly. John Updike called him one of the great transmogrifiers of the world into words. Isaac Bashevis Singer regarded him as one of the most remarkable writers who ever lived. And the Nobel Prize-winning Polish novelist Olga Tokarczuk confessed to loving Schulz, but also to hating him because no one could ever displace him as the supreme virtuoso of Polish fiction. Yet in the broader literary culture, Schulz remains a marginal figure, the kind whose star, unlike the ones he wrote about, does nothing dramatic. It neither rises nor falls, brightens nor dims. It is simply up there, still blazing with its own past light whenever someone bothers to look at it. I have been one of those stargazers since my late teens, which is why earlier this year, I picked up a new biography of Schulz, the first one written in English, Benjamin Balint's Bruno Schulz, an artist, a murder, a murder and the hijacking of history, published by Norton. I like biographies and have read plenty of them, but I've never before read one that caused me to bolt upright midway through as if its subject had just come back from the dead. The jolt came while reading Balint's account of a story about the Polish poet Jerry Fikowski, who wrote the first and still definitive biography of Schulz, Regions of the Great Heresy. 
Fikowski was 18 when he sent a fan letter to Schulz, not knowing that the address would not work because his literary idol had been consigned to a Jewish ghetto and was months from being murdered. After the war, Fikowski began a lifelong quest to track down every surviving scrap of Schulziana. The white whale of that search was a draft of Messiah, a novel Schulz worked on from 1934 until the year before he died, when, aware of his likely fate, he wrapped it up in a package and gave it to a Catholic acquaintance, hoping both would outlast the war. No one knows if either one survived, but once or twice the manuscript seemed to be on the verge of resurfacing. Here is Boleyn describing one of those occasions. In 1987, Jerry Fakowski received a telephone call from one Alex Schulz, who claimed to be the illegitimate son of Bruno's elder brother. Alex, a plumber living in Los Angeles, was born Isaac Schulz in 1918. His father was from Borislaw and his mother from Drohobes. He told Fakowski he had been contacted by an unnamed man in Lviv seeking a buyer for the, a two-kilogram, four-and-a-half-pound packet containing eight drawings by Schulz and the manuscript of Messiah. This was shocking to me, not because I hadn't heard of it before, but precisely because I had. Alex Schulz, that plumber in Los Angeles, was my grandfather. I grew up vaguely aware of the family legend that I was related to Bruno Schulz, a legend my father alternately cherished out of an abiding love of literature and dismissed out of a certain skepticism about the veracity of his own father's claims. In my teens, when I first read Bruno Schulz, I, too, grew interested in the possible connection, but a geneal genealogical search seemed to lead nowhere, the illegitimate part of the tale having been tactfully omitted when it was passed down to me, and although I occasionally repeated the rumor about my grandfather's parentage, I did not really believe it. Only when I picked up Belint's book did I realize that the stories I'd grown up with had a life far beyond my own family and that it might be possible to find out if they were true. Among Bruno Schulz's many identities, Jewish, Polish, artistic, insecure, depressive, masochistic, one of the most determinative was this. He was a homebody. Unsettled by the outside world, he yearned for uninterrupted stretches of solitude. When he was ill at ease, which was often, he soothed himself by drawing the same little stylized image of a house over and over. This attachment to the idea of home was peculiar, given the actual home in which Schulz was raised. He had two living older siblings, a brother and a sister, and two who died before the age of four. Those deceased siblings meant that Bruno, born in 1892, was by far the baby of the family, 20 years younger than his surviving sister Hania, and 10 years younger than his surviving brother Baruch Israel, known as Isidore, the man my grandfather thought was his father. As a result, Bruno spent much of his youth as a de facto only child living with his parents in an apartment above the family's dry goods store, whose mannequins and bolts of fabric would later fill his fiction. From early on, he loved to draw and hoped to become an artist. For just as long, he suffered from acute self-consciousness and amorphous shame. One of these people, an acquaintance said, who kind of apologized for their very existence. 
Eventually, Schulz's father contracted tuberculosis and became too sick to work. To save money, the family moved into the house where Hania lived with her family. In 1910, her husband slit his throat, plunging Hania into a depression from which she never recovered. Bruno, who graduated from high school that same year, briefly left to study architecture in Lvoof, but the First World War and his father's ailment soon forced him back home, where he would eventually and reluctantly begin teaching art in the same high school from which he had graduated. When he was 22, his father died, leaving behind a household of the widowed, the unwed, and the unwell. Together with his mother, sister, nephews, and an older female cousin, plus a large assortment of cats, Schulz lived in Charles Adams' gloom, the paintings covered in cobwebs, the floors creaky with age, the whole atmosphere muffled and morbid. To most people, Schulz's hometown seemed similarly unprepossessing, a Galician backwater permanently altered by the discovery of oil there in the middle of the 19th century, Trahobis combined the provincial character of rural Central Europe with the predictable results of rapid industrialization, rigs and refineries dotting the landscape, bars and brothels filling the town. Other rapid changes, geopolitical rather than geological, likewise buffeted the region. Schulz was born a citizen of the Habsburg Empire, but subsequently lived in Ukraine, Poland, the Soviet Union, and the Third Reich, all without leaving Drohobes, which today is again part of Ukraine. But whatever the town's flaws and whichever flag flew overhead, Schulz could conceive of no other home. I can't live anywhere else, he once said, and here I will die. My grandfather was the opposite of a homebody, a serial escape artist. He possessed a keen sense of danger and excellent timing, qualities that helped sustain his lifelong habit of slipping away at the right moment. That was a crucial ability for a Jew born in 1918 in the soon-to-be-revived nation of Poland, whose Jewish citizens would be all but completely annihilated in a matter of decades. Yet the Drahobes my grandfather and Bruno Schulz knew was roughly 40% Jewish, with the remaining population split equally between Polish Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Ukrainians. The Jews tended to be members of the merchant classes, but my grandfather hoped to practice medicine. And so after grade school, he continued his studies at a gymnasium whose faculty included a particularly beloved art teacher, Bruno Schulz. That adoration was surprising. Scholz, who never stopped dreading his job, slunk through the hallways like a man trying to make himself invisible, alternately taking sedatives and chewing coffee beans to get through the days. His stooped, cowed, dangerously diffident presence might have made him an object of mockery. Instead, he tamed his pupils with stories. One former student recalled a tale about a wandering knight who was cut in half along with his horse, by the unexpected closing of a gate. From that time on, the rider wandered through the world on half his horse. Other students remembered other fragments about a water jug brought to life, a sick child who longed to go outside, while some simply retained a gestalt impression of stories so extraordinary that the wildest kids sat there enchanted. However much Schulz's students liked and admired him, they were sometimes exposed in troubling ways to his unconventional desires. 
In the middle of a private art lesson, one female student realized that Schulz was drawing her legs. Another student was shocked by a self-portrait showing Schulz crouched at the feet of a woman who was holding a whip and wearing nothing but fishnet stockings. A third recalled a drawing by Schulz featuring a woman stepping into a bathtub that a man was filling with blood from a headless body. Decapitated heads, including Schulz's, lay at her feet. The students, embarrassed but attuned to the local rumor mill, got out an encyclopedia and looked up the word masochist. As those glimpses suggest, Schulz was simultaneously open and coy about his proclivities. In 1924, he self-published The Book of Idolatry, a collection of 26 erotic prints that he claimed falsely were illustrations for a Polish edition of Leopold von Sacher Masek's Venus in Furs. But whether Schulz's private life resembled any of his visual fantasies is unclear. In practice, he seems to have been an extremely shy serial monogamist, nurturing intense but not necessarily consummated relationships with successive women. For literary history, the most significant of these was the poet and philosopher Deborah Vogel. When her mother discouraged the match, Schultz, inclined to agree with anyone who thought poorly of him, did not put up a fight. Instead, he retreated into a purely epistolary relationship with his one-time love. Those epistles soon began acquiring postscripts, which, as Belint wonderfully describes, it grew more fantastical and unmoored from the contents of the letters, like boats pushed away from the shore of reality. Encouraged by Vogel's enthusiasm, he turned those postscripts into stories, which she then helped get in front of Zofia Nalkowska, the grand dame of Polish publishing. It took less than a day for Nalkowska to declare Scholz the most sensational discovery in our literature. She would soon become one of his lovers, or anyway, one of his whatevers, as she once summed up their relationship. I am charming and kind, and I allow him to idolize me. The short story collection she helped usher into existence, Cinnamon Shops, published in English decades later as The Street of Crocodiles, came out in December of 1933. The book made Schulz famous but not happy. The following year, he told a friend that he could not shake the sadness of life, fear of the future, some dark conviction that everything is headed for a tragic end. Nor did he get rich enough to quit his job. He still spent his days teaching woodworking and draftsmanship and delivering lectures on topics like artistic formation in cardboard and its application in school. He was able to write only when he could steal time away from such obligations and from his frequent bouts of depression. Still, in 1937, he published a second collection, Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass. The stories in both books took Schulz's attraction to home and rendered it dreamlike, sometimes even grotesque. Their narrator, Joseph, is of indeterminate and changeable age, generally a young boy or a teenager. As Schulz did, he lives with his family and a maid in an apartment above a dry goods store in an unnamed town so deep in the hinterlands that beyond its outskirts, the region turns nameless and cosmic like Canaan. The logic of the stories is the logic of childhood. Time is elastic. Joseph's life alternates between monotony and wild adventure, 
and the less trafficked rooms of his apartment, like the side streets of his town, are places of wonder and dread. In one of those neglected rooms, an entire forest springs up only to subside just as quickly, so that by nightfall there was no trace left of that splendid flowering. If that story sounds familiar, it is because Bruno Schulz sometimes reads like a Maurice Sendak for grown-ups, his tales fantastical and backlit, bent on restoring to life the complicated condition of childhood, its sudden magic and amorphous looming scariness. Some of his tales scarcely have plots, perhaps my favorite of them, Cinnamon Chops, could be summed up as, the time father forgot his wallet and sent me home alone to fetch it. Others are elaborate concoctions that bring to mind Kafka, not least because they are full of characters who undergo strange transformations, including into a cockroach, but most show stoppingly into a doorbell. That particular transformation comes off as high comedy despite his tragic life. Schulz was a very funny writer. So impressed is everyone by how well the man-turned-doorbell performs his duties that even his wife could not stop herself from pressing the button quite often. But it also comes off as as apt for a man of Schulz's temperament. What higher aspiration for him than to be permanently on his own doorstep singing the song of home? That same year, the sanatorium under the sign of the hourglass was published. My grandfather graduated from high school. Still hoping to become a doctor, he wanted to attend university, but by then Poland had begun imposing quotas on Jewish students and their complete exclusion seemed imminent. In 1937, nationalist students at Lwów University organized a day without Jews. To continue his studies, my grandfather realized he would need to leave the country, but studying abroad was too expensive to manage on his own. The man who paid his tuition, he later claimed, was his uncle, Bruno Schulz. This was a complicated contention. It's true that Schulz sometimes helped out his students, supplying the poorest of them with food and clothing, but he was never well off, and it's unlikely that he would have been able to finance a foreign education. The same did not hold, however, for his ambitious older brother. An engineer by training, Baruch Israel had worked in the oil industry, served on the National Council of Oil Exporters, and opened a series of successful businesses. Socially and philanthropically active, he was as elegant and charming as Bruno was awkward and shy, and for most of his life, he was the one who seemed like the family success story. Then, in 1935, at the age of 53, Baruch Israel died of a heart attack. Predeceased by his wife, Regina Schulz, he left behind their three children, Wilhelm, Ella, and Jacob, and apparently other dependents as well. As Bruno Schulz later wrote, without much elaboration, his brother had been the breadwinner for a number of families. Whether one of those was my grandfather's, I do not know. Nor do I know if the famously generous philanthropist made any provisions in life or in death, for a young student attending the same gymnasium where his brother taught. I only know that by September of 1937, my grandfather had left Poland to study medicine in Nancy, France. To a boy born and raised in Galicia, France was a paradise of liberty and prosperity, but the idyll was short-lived. In the summer of 1939, my grandfather returned home for the term break and was still there when the Nazis invaded Poland. Within two weeks, he had been drafted into the Polish army. 
taken prisoner by the Germans and sent to a labor camp outside Konigsberg. After 10 days of enduring the terrible conditions, little food, no medical care, daily executions, my grandfather was done waiting around for the worst. The escape in his telling was not difficult. He obtained civilian clothing, waited for an opportune moment, and simply walked away. But for most other European Jews, an opportune moment never came. Back in Drohobis, Bruno Schulz watched as the Nazis reached his hometown, then handed it over to the Red Army. For the next two years, he became a forced conscript in the Soviet war on bourgeois corruption, contributing faux social realist illustrations to the new local newspaper, Bolshevik Truth, and painting a 50-foot-tall portrait of Stalin for the town hall. It was a bad life made radically worse in June of 1941 when the Nazis retook Drohobas. Not even a single day elapsed between their arrival and the mass murder of local Jews. In short order, Jewish possessions were seized, Jewish workers were relieved of their jobs and sent to perform forced labor, and Jewish residents were forbidden to use public buildings, parks, or sidewalks. Within the month, Jews were being rounded up at first by the dozens and later by the hundreds, taken to a nearby forest, made to dig their own graves, and shot. In November, Schulz and his family were forced out of their home and, together with some 12,000 other Drohobas Jews, sent to a newly created ghetto. By March, its residents were being taken to Belzec, the first Nazi death camp to use gas chambers and one of the deadliest. Its name is less well-known than that of Auschwitz or Treblinka, chiefly because so few people, under 10 out of more than half a million sent there, survived it. It was nightmarish in every possible way, but Schulz was initially spared the worst of it. Instead of back-breaking labor, he was put to work sorting through art and books that had been looted by the Nazis, tasked with determining what was valuable and what should be destroyed. When that job ended, he was spared once again, this time because a Gestapo officer named Felix Landau, a sadist with artistic pretensions, enlisted him as his personal lackey. Humiliating as this status was, it came with some protection from violence, plus an extra ration of food, at a time when some 30 Drohobas Jews were dying of starvation every day. In exchange, Schulz served as a portrait artist for Landau and his Nazi friends and painted murals on Nazi buildings, including a series of fairy tale scenes, a Cinderella-like figure, a horse-drawn carriage, Snow White with her dwarfs, in the nursery of Landau's young son. In Polish, the word for hourglass can also mean obituary. Either way, sanatorium under the sign of the hourglass was an apt title for what turned out to be Schulz's final book. For him, as for his fellow Jews, time was running out. A depressive realist, possessed of unusual powers of both perception and imagination, Schulz had long recognized the coming calamity. Something wants to ferment out of the concentrated noise of these darkening days. Something immense beyond measure, he'd written in a story published the same year as Lvov University's Day Without Jews. I test and I calculate what kind of event might equal this catastrophic barometric drop. By 1942, he knew the answer. That spring, he told a former colleague that the Nazis would soon liquidate the Jews. Upon escaping from the labor camp, my grandfather made his way back to France, only to find that it was no longer a safe place for Jews. 
The French underground got him to, to Calais. From there, a fishing boat took him across the Strait of Dover. As impressed by England as he had once been by France, he joined the British Army fighting against Rommel in North Africa and participating in the Allied invasion of Sicily. After the war, my grandfather, now in Palestine, learned that he was one of horrifyingly few of his kind still alive. Some 30,000 Jews had lived in Drohobes and Borislav before the war. Only 800 or so survived it. Most of my grandfather's immediate family members were killed in the Nazi actions around Drohobes. Among his extended family, he counted only two survivors. As for the man he thought was his uncle, when catastrophe began closing in, Bruno Schulz set about trying to save his work, gathering up his art and his manuscripts and distributing them among a half-dozen packages to be smuggled out of the ghetto. Yet he made no analogous plans to save himself. Eventually, his friends took matters into their own hands, raising the necessary funds and acquired, acquiring forged Aryan documents to help him flee. Thus equipped, she'll set a date on which to do so, November 19, 1942, which would become known in Drahobis as Black Thursday. That morning, a Jewish man shot a member of the Gestapo. More than 200 Jews were slaughtered in retaliation. The details of Schulz's death are murky. Balint recounts five different versions, but the most widely circulated variation concerns an SS offer named Karl Gunther. Earlier that month, Felix Landau had killed a Jewish man who was under Gunther's protection. On the afternoon of Black Thursday, Gunther ran into Landau and shared some news. You killed my Jew, I killed yours. Whether or not that story is true, it is certain that Bruno Schulz was shot to death that day, less than a hundred yards from the house where he was born. When night fell, his body still lay in the street. On his right side, he wore an armband, given to him by Landau. It was meant to broadcast his special status, Necessary Jew. It was in Palestine that my grandfather met my grandmother. She was a widow with two sons, and together they had a third to keep the family afloat, my grandfather, ever the escape artist, found work as a locksmith. But when Tel Aviv became a war zone, he decided that it was once again time to leave. Unemployment was rampant across Europe, but he knew of one place where he could earn a living, on the booming post-war black market. And so in February of 1948, three months before the creation of the State of Israel, he moved his wife and children to perhaps the least likely destination imaginable for a family of Jews at the time, Germany. After four years of hawking Leica cameras and American cigarettes there, he had the necessary money and paperwork to leave again, this time for the United States, where the family settled in Michigan. He was safe finally, but still restive. And once his sons were grown, he traded in temperate Detroit for sunny Los Angeles and in 1972, divorced my grandmother. My earliest memories of my grandfather date to a span of a few months that he spent living with my family in Cleveland. I think of him at our kitchen table, tiny and wiry, in a ribbed white undershirt and work pants, with a Pall Mall perpetually between his fingers. Affectionate, articulate, and opinionated, he was a good talker, but I was too young to be a good listener or to know that I someday I would wish I had asked him a thousand questions. Only after his death did I learn that he had tried to buy the manuscript of Messiah, traveled to Poland to meet Jerry Fakowski, and been in touch with the two of 
of Baruch Israel and Regina's children to survive the war. Jacob, whom he visited in London, and Ella, with whom he maintained a correspondence, providing her with occasional financial support. To the best of my knowledge, neither sibling ever believed that Alex was their half-brother, but Fikowski, who was astonished when my grandfather came to his door, so strong was his physical resemblance to Bruno Schulz, felt that, based on my grandfather's birth certificate, one had to conclude that he was the illegitimate son of the writer's brother. That birth certificate, handwritten in Polish, was a translation of an Italian version on file at the University of Pisa, where, as a young man, my grandfather had applied to study. It states that my grandfather was born in wedlock to Krajindel Fajja Schulz and Baruch Israel Schulz, an industrialist. In a letter of which I've seen only a fragment, my grandfather affirms that the names are correct, but says... I am puzzled as to why my birth is deemed legitimate. I, too, am puzzled, although not only by that. Some believe that my grandfather was misled by a coincidence, that his father really was an industrialist by the name of Baruch Israel Schulz, just not the industrialist by the name of Baruch Israel Schulz, who was the brother to Bruno. That would have been an extremely improbable coincidence, but it would at least answer one of the most fundamental questions in this saga. Why was my grandfather's last name Schulz? His mother's maiden name was Hauser, so presumably she married a Schulz. But which one, and for how long, and if he stuck around, and what happened to him, and who or what in my grandfather's life led him to believe that he was related to Bruno Schulz, all this remains a mystery. I don't know what made me hopeful that I would be able to answer any of these questions. So much of this history involves things that have gone missing, swept away by cruelty, indifference, the ruthless reaping of time, that it seems fated to remain full of lacunae. Not long after my grandfather met Jerzy Fakowski, while he was awaiting instructions from the man who wanted to sell him Messiah, he had a massive stroke. He survived another half-dozen years, largely unable to communicate and confined to an assisted living facility although near the end he somehow managed to break out of it. He was found 26 miles away sitting by the edge of the sea. The manuscript of Messiah has never surfaced. But one set of lost works by Schulz did reappear, touching off a debate that feels relevant to my family's history. In 2001, six decades after the author's murder, the fairy tale murals he was forced to paint were found hidden behind pots and pickling jars and coats of paint in the pantry of an apartment carved out of the building where the Nazi Felix Landau and his family had once lived. The discovery made headlines around the world. The mayor of Drohobis pledged that the murals would be protected in situ, and efforts at fundraising began in an attempt to move the current occupants of the building so that it could be turned into Reconciliation Center, dedicated to Bruno Schulz. Instead, three months later, Israeli agents, acting on orders from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, descended on Drahobis, pried five sections of the mural from the plaster walls, and spirited them back to Jerusalem, in express violation of international laws on the exporting of cultural property. The question raised by the ensuing global uproar is the same one that haunts my family. Who has the right to claim a relationship to Bruno Schulz? 
In defending its actions, a, a Yad Vashem representative reputedly said, Listen, who visits Drohobish? By two million people visit Yad Vashem annually. Those who agree that the murals belong in Jerusalem argue not just that more people get to experience Schulz's work there, but also that Israel has a greater right to that work than Ukraine or Poland. And it's certainly true that both nations have a history of brutal treatment of Jews, and that neither had previously made much effort to honor Bruno Schulz. Still, the case that Israel has a special claim on Schulz rests almost entirely on the fact that he was shot and killed because he was a Jew, an argument based on his death, not his life. By upbringing, Schulz was essentially what we would today call a secular Jew. He knew neither Hebrew nor Yiddish, the native and in many cases exclusive language of more than 80% of Poland's three million pre-war Jews. If he had any theological, political, or social commitments to Judaism, he held them lightly. He routinely crossed himself when his students recited Catholic prayers, and after a Catholic woman he loved agreed to marry him, he placed an announcement in the local papers formally withdrawing from the Jewish faith. She later withdrew herself from the engagement. The Nazis nonetheless reduced Schulz to nothing more than his Jewishness, but that strikes me as a strong case for not doing so today. If any place on the planet has a credible claim to him, it is surely Jehovah's, his attachment to which is evident from both his life and his work. The counter-argument is not that Schulz was murdered for being Jewish and that therefore his work belongs at Yad Vashem. It is that Schulz was a brilliant artist and that therefore his work belongs to the world, to anyone, anywhere who loves his stories. That relationship of delight, admiration, even identification is available to everyone regardless of nationality, religion, or lineage. This is perhaps the most beautiful thing literature can do. Forge a kinship across identities freed from partisanship, unbound by space or time. If my grandfather was not his nephew, Schulz's last living relative is dead, and I am just another admirer. Yet I find myself content in the knowledge that his descendants are like those promised by God to Abraham, more numerous than the stars. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Dale with The New Yorker. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.